Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the brilliant and wise Buddhist teacher, Frank Ostaseski, author of The Five Invitations. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. Chili Pad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep S-L-E-E-P dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. Acceptance is a kind of a choice. We say, I accept this. That's the way they are. Surrender feels different. It feels like we're not just distancing ourselves from something, but we're expanding around the thing that was giving us trouble. Yeah so that it's not, it doesn't have such a stranglehold on us in a way. And with acceptance comes to do, is a gateway to something appreciably deeper, which is the possibility of transformation. The possibility of using the situation that we find ourselves in as a step in our growth and our further discovery of who we are. So says the enduringly wise Buddhist teacher, Frank Ostaseski a leading figure in the contemplative care for the dying movement, having co-founded the acclaimed Zen Hospice Center. In 2004, he established the Meta Institute, which offers innovative training and education for compassionate end-of-life care. His book, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully, explores the wisdom that emerges from embracing mortality whether you're contemplating the end of your life or not. This is what guides our conversation today. Frank invites us to consider how we approach the small endings that occur in our everyday life. How do you say goodbye at the end of a dinner? Along with the practice of listening intently and looking for opportunities to forgive and make amends. 
Ultimately, though, our conversation circles what it means to surrender to circumstances we cannot control. Let's get to our conversation. Thank you for your book. It's beautiful. And I want to sort of open it up by saying that, yes, obviously, you work with and hold the hands of many who are dying. But this book, in so many ways, is about how to live, which is really only possible in some ways by acknowledging that it will end someday. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if we were to look at Siri right now, we would find out that, you know, 55 million people are going to die in the hour that we're recording this podcast. Is that true? Yeah. Wow. Totally. Wow. You know, there's a famous story in the Mahabharata, that one of the old Hindu texts that says, you know, um, what's the most wondrous thing in the world? And the sage answers, what's the most wondrous thing in the world is that all around us, men and women see that people are dying, and yet they think it won't happen to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's true. The other day, I have two small children, and my son, my youngest, my six-year-old, asked me how many days had been alive, and so I Googled it, and then I Googled myself, and it's something like 12,000 days. It's kind of an insignificant number of days, right? And yet, I'm already halfway through, most likely, if I'm lucky. We're not here for very long, and yet, we spend most of our lives trying to defer or deny the eventual reality that will be going soon. Yeah. I mean, look, it's one of the things I wrote about in the book is that, you know, death's not waiting for us at the end of a long road. It's not waiting for us at 80 years old or 90 years old or whatever number we imagine. It's with us right now, you know, in the, in yeah. the marrow of every passing moment. Yeah. And, no. Yeah. And you've obviously been present at so many people's passings. And I've heard, I'm curious for your perspective. I've, I've had this conversation with, with several people who have been in attendance at hundreds, maybe thousands of deaths. And that one, Rabbi Steve Leviter talks about it as like, for most people, falling asleep after jet lag. Like there's like a acceptance or relaxation that it's, it's those of us who are still living who tend to carry the most anxiety, I think is what his point was. I don't know if that's been your experience or not. You know, at least I, I've stopped imagining there's a wave that people die. You know, <laughs> everybody dies in a really unique way, just like everybody gets born in a unique way, right? There's not some generalization we can make about it. But yes, it's true that often the conditions of dying are helpful in bringing us to some kind of peace of mind, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can talk about that some more, but that's, I think that's true. Yeah. And so I see regular people, people like you and I, you know, some people who had never had any inner life or any psychological, you know, training, meet dying in remarkable ways, ways that they mm -hmm. couldn't have imagined that they would meet them. Yeah. And that's, that's fascinating to me, really fascinating to me. That means death has got something in it that's actually helpful to us. Mm. That's a beautiful idea. I mean, you write, lessons from death are available to all those who choose to move toward it. I have witnessed a heart opening occurring in not only people near death, but also their caregivers. They found a depth of love within themselves that they didn't know they had access to. They discovered a profound trust in the universe and the reliable goodness of humanity that never abandoned them, regardless of the suffering they encountered. Such a beautiful idea This that as we start winding down, in some ways, it's an opportunity to get much bigger, right? To grow in those final moments. Yes, uh, provided we're not surrounded by fear. That's really important, you know, that what's in the neighborhood matters, you know? Yeah. So who's around us at the time of our dying, whether it's, you know, professional healthcare providers or family or friends, if they're really afraid, then that can have a really big effect on the person who's dying. So what's in the neighborhood matters. It really matters. Yeah. So when you and your experience tending to people, are you, and I love the story that you tell in the book of a nurse whose discomfort is palpable and she wants, for a patient, she wants to medicate her and you're sort of like, I think maybe you need to medicate yourself. <laughs> so do you find in the neighborhood, in the room, who are you, and obviously it depends immensely on what's happening, but are you tending, who's most typically afraid 
Who are you tending to or trying to manage most acutely? Well, I, I'm a little suspicious of people who say they have no fear of dying, honestly, <laughs> because most cases, the people I've been with have at some point had some fear. You know, I come from a Buddhist tradition. In that tradition, we say there are three gifts you can give. You can give gift of the teachings, gift of a material object, and the gift of no fear. Right? So that's really a precious gift to be able to give to someone. So when we started the Zen hospice years ago, you know, we didn't have a big plan. We just thought there was a natural match between people who are cultivating what I might call a listening heart through the practice of meditation and people who really needed to be heard at least once in their life. Hmm. So that's what we started. And, and sometimes it was the person who was dying and sometimes it was their friends or family. And our job was to provide a kind of devout listening. And when you listen devoutly, as you're doing right now, we tend to draw out the truth from the other person, I think. And that's an, a remarkably important aspect of this process of being with dying. Yeah. Mm. It's beautiful. How do we do that for people when they're still alive? Well, listen without preparing the next thing you're going to say before, you, before it's just your turn. That's one of the things, right? A kind of non-judgmental quality that helps enormously, of course. Get curious. You know, one of the qualities that I most that I think is most important at the time of dying in life, for that matter, is being curious. Mm. How come you think that? Why? Wow, tell me more about that. I never thought of things that way. That's, that's a, a live, beautiful, joyful way of living, yeah? Mm. I mean, you know, think about kids and, you know, you have children. And so, you know, when children play, they don't play for a purpose. They just play, right? My granddaughter came over the other day and she said, Grandpa, let's play. And I got out the basket with all the puzzles and the drawing things. She said, no, Grandpa, I want to play. And, and what she meant is I want to imagine, you know, I want to be curious. And mm -hmm. so, so suppose we were that way around people who were dying. Suppose that was the way we led our life. Not necessarily always focused on the outcome, but drawn to discovery. Drawn mm -hmm. to discovery, yeah. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlitten oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. 
Do you find, I'm trying to imagine or put myself in that space, do you find that people need to unburden themselves or come to feeling complete in some way? Or do you feel like in the process of of being with people, particularly in a palliative care setting or hospice setting, where they're walking this path, getting closer, sensing the nearness, that they're recognizing even more that there is nothing to unburden and that they're already whole? Yeah, it's a really great question. I wish there was a single answer to it. But of course, <laughs> there's not because we human beings are, you know, individuals, unique individuals. But yes, of course, there are people who are need to unburden aspects of their life in which through which they've caused pain or maybe regrets that they're carrying into their dying process. But, you know, one of the things that I saw time and time again, is that the big questions on people's hearts are, am I loved? Mm. And did I love well? And if those are the two most important questions at the end of our life, well, aren't they the most important questions now? Mm. I mean, why wait until we find ourselves on our deathbed to, to respond to those questions? Mm. So I think, I think often those are the cases. They're not always expressed that way, of course, but that's often what's on people's hearts. And, yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, you sort of talk about words in a couple of places where you talk about, you know, you tease these concepts apart. You write, we confuse forgiveness with forgetting. We are afraid that if we forgive, we will forget and the harm may happen again. And I would imagine that there, of course, is some, in many instances, some acrimony or some perception of a of a wrong that's hard for people to... Essentially, you seem to be suggesting that there is the promise of peace without letting go of of what that experience meant to you. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, again, I'm inclined to say that people are going to do this in really different ways. Mm-hmm. And as you suggested in, in the little part that you read, forgiving is not the same thing as forgetting. It's not condoning bad actions. It's not right. saying, oh, it's all okay that you know you were abusive to me. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. You know, what I'm suggesting is it's too painful for us to keep carrying around this burden, uh, this pain of this bag of suffering that we're dragging behind us. And so for ourselves, for our own benefit, we forgive. And again, Mm -hmm. not condoning, forgiving. It hurts too much to keep someone out of my heart. Mm. This is why I think in the end, all forgiveness is ultimately self-forgiveness. Because Mm. we want to set down on our suffering. We want to set down on our suffering. That's really what's happening in the process of forgiveness. But there's many steps before we get to that, that experience. I mean, there can be anger and depression and, and numbness and all manner of other things that come into this process. And when we forgive, it doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. You know, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean we even have any contact with the person who's harmed us or who we've harmed. Mm-hmm. That's something's different. Forgiveness is touching what hurts with some degree of merciful awareness. Mm. That's the way I would talk about it, yeah. It's beautiful. I think too, you said merciful awareness and there's that energy of mercy which comes from merc or mercantile or there's an exchange associated with the two and it's a sort of like at the heart of love in some ways, right? And so maybe maybe it's also just in those instances about finding and extending mercy, if not yeah, forgiveness. Most especially to ourselves, I would say. Yeah. I mean, the other thing we confuse forgiveness with is justice. And we may forgive and never find justice. You know, We want the other person to pay for their harm to us. We want them to apologize, to take responsibility for what they did. And that may never occur, Mm. never. And the question is, you know, how much are we going to hold, how much are we going to hold on to this thing? I mean, the the image that I sometimes give is holding a hot coal in your hand. And you've been holding that hot coal for 30 or 40 years. Forgiveness Mm. is setting down the hot coal because it's burning your hand. And you don't want to, you don't want to do that anymore for your own Mm. benefit. For the, mm. for the sake of your own well-being, yeah. Mm, it's so beautiful. And then to that end, you also write a bit farther in the book, a critical point here is that acceptance 
doesn't require agreement. We may still want to work to change our life circumstances, but you can't make a change until you first accept the truth of what is right in front of you, eyes wide open. And that, it works with what you were just saying, the difference between accepting that something happened without condoning it, agreeing with it, or feeling like it's just, but also in the context of how we move forward, I would imagine, or even accepting the reality of our, the fact that we're dying. Sure. I mean, I think there's also an important distinction to be made between acceptance and resignation, you know, mm. where we just kind of collapse in resignation. We just sort of collapse into this experience feeling futile, like there's nothing we can do about it, you know, and there may not be anything we can do about the other person or the situation, but there is a lot we can do about our relationship to what's occurring. Yeah. Mm. So, Say more. Um, yeah. So, you know, and acceptance, you know, I studied with Kubler-Ross way back in the day, and she was a mentor of mine, and I'm very grateful to her. And you remember those famous five stages that she had, well, the last of which was acceptance. And, you know, I, I trust what she was trying to do. She wasn't saying it was a linear path, by the way. I know. But, but acceptance isn't the end. It's just the beginning. Mm. You know, uh, James Baldwin said, said something about, you know, there's a lot of things we can't change in this world, but nothing can be changed until we accept it, basically. So I think that acceptance is the beginning. And I think there are appreciably deeper states than acceptance that occur in the dying process and occur in our everyday lives as well. You know, mm -hmm. what I see at the end of life in the process with people often is a kind of chaos that comes after acceptance. And it scares the hell out of the family members or the friends because this person is not behaving in the way they were, or maybe they're temporarily afraid. And what I see often, if those, if those people are well-guided and they're well-accompanied, is that that chaos, that fear, often gives way to something appreciably different than uh, acceptance, which is surrender. Acceptance is a kind of a choice. We say, I accept this. That's the way they are. Surrender feels different. It feels like we're not just distancing ourselves from something, but we're expanding around the thing that was giving us trouble. Yeah? Mm. So that it's not, it doesn't have such a stranglehold on us in a way. And with acceptance comes to do, is a gateway to something appreciably deeper, which is the possibility of transformation. The possibility mm. of using the situation that we find ourselves in as a step in our growth, in our further discovery of who we are. Yeah. Mm, that's so beautiful. And you think about surrender and you think about a lot of the re the lot of the problems that we have in our culture, one of which is our and in, within illness and dying and the way that our favorite metaphors are war, right? And battle and fighting and destroying and eviscerating cancer, disease, whatever it may be. It's all about winning somehow and losing. Yeah. And you think about a word like surrender, which is such a beautiful word, and I don't think well understood culturally. Yeah. And immediately people are like, well, I'm giving up? Is that what you're asking? When in really, it, it seems like it's more about relinquishing control in some ways or allowing what is to happen and being with it rather than against it. Yeah. I mean, yesterday I was talking to a woman who is facing life-threatening illness, and she said, to me, Frank, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so fed up with fighting. She said, every time I fight with reality, I lose. Mm. And so that's really what we're speaking about here. It's not about deciding on a treatment plan or, you know, not wanting to attend to the, our health. It's not about that. It is about recognizing that there is a reality that we are, that we are coming face to face with. How do we want to meet it? Yeah. Mm. With, with fight, with battle. I mean, look at our, you know, you know this better than I, look at our healthcare system, all the language that we use in there. It's what you've just been describing. Badly, he fight the disease, you know. After a long battle with cancer, he died. Mm -hmm. Well, why couldn't it have been after a loving time with his family? In his final days, mm -hmm. he let go. Yeah. Also in the way that we describe ourselves as having diseases, right? Like I have this thing and then we battle 
this part of ourselves. And I'm not saying I love cancer, but it is part, it, it's to, to identify with it in that way and then attack it also feels violent towards ourselves in some ways or outside of this idea of acknowledging what is in that moment without denying the fact that you wish that what is in that moment didn't include cancer. Yeah. Well, there's a bigger issue behind this, which is that we tend to think of becoming sick as a punishment. Yeah. We think it's a mistake that we get sick. You know, it's like that quote I was using earlier about all around us, we see people dying and we think it won't happen to us. And we have a culture that, you know, keeps death at arm's length. You know, we, we even put rouge on people in the coffin, you know, all ways of pretending that it isn't happening. So, yeah, I think that sometimes when we think of illness as a punishment instead of a natural part of our experience, we feel we've done something wrong. Yeah. yeah. Isn't the very root of illness evilness? But yes, it's this, how could this happen to, to me, right? And it's like, well, how could it not happen to you? Why, why you and why not you? And <laughs> Although that's a very difficult thing to say to someone who's got, you know, metastasized cancer. They're going to say, right. get the hell out of my room. They'll slap you with a wet fish and tell you to get out. <laughs> I'm sure. Or they don't need your services, right? Right. But here's, a, here's, here's something that I, I could add to this. You know, a few years ago, I had a series of strokes. I actually had five of them over a period of months. And the doctors often spoke to me about recovery. You know, how my, you know, neural pathways would eventually recover. And the brain was a very plastic, flexible organ, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I kept saying to them, thank you very much for this, but I'm not that much interested in recovery. And they were shocked. And I said, I'm much more interested in discovery. I'm interested to see what does this, what can I discover in this situation, in this, you know, injury to my brain as a result of this illness? What has it got to show me? And that wasn't being Pollyanna, you know, it was hard. But entering into my experience, my illness, experience of illness with that sense of discovery was very useful. And mm. it showed me what would help me in my brain's recovery. What were the that literally the tasks uh, that I should do that would help my brain to cognitively recover. Mm. So discovery, I think, is really important. That's that curiosity we were speaking about earlier, coming back into play. Yeah. Yeah. How do we meet this situation? You know, I don't always know. So I'm willing to wait and see what it shows me. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. It's interesting. I just wrote this story for the O Magazine about wholeness being the new wellness. And you talk about both wellness and wholeness, but I think you talk about wholeness really beautifully and thinking about that idea of stroke recovery and the way that it feels like culturally we're getting to this point where one of the primary things that we prioritize or care about is wellness, which is is admirable, of course, but it's this focus on physical health and optimization. And I think where we conflate these two concepts in a way that is potentially devastating when you're not well, but you can still feel whole. You know, you write about wholeness. To be whole, we need to include, accept, and connect all parts of ourselves. We need acceptance of our conflicting qualities and the seeming incongruity of our inner and outer worlds. Wholeness does not mean perfection. It means no part left out. I think that's such a beautiful idea, too, thinking about you in the context of suffering from a, a stroke and not necessarily being fixated on being exactly how you were or back at full force frank. But who are you now? Like, you can keep that wholeness 
you can grow that wholeness even as wellness winnows. Yeah, beautiful. No, no part left out, right? Yeah. I mean, when my daughter and I would go shopping, you know, we'd go to consignment shops, right? And, you know, I'd go in with her and she'd find a really cool blouse or something. And I'd look around the store for something else. And I noticed as I was shopping for a leather jacket or a scarf, there would be these tags. And on the tags, they would say $9.99 as is. And mm. I just love them, you know, these tags. I think we should get them for each other, you know, and give them as, as, you know, holiday presents to each other. As is, I take you as is. I mean, there's an incredible gift in that, that you know, with all of your foibles and all of your neuro neuroses and all of your mishigash, I love you and take you as is. You know? mm. What an extraordinary gift that would be to give to each other. You know, no present would need to be attached to that tag. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. I I'm interested just to also in that as is quality. What would our culture look like if we could let go? of our wellness and recognize that we're moving towards wholeness and that the two are not, the one does not deny the presence of the other. But what would it, what would it look like to live in a culture that wasn't trying to constantly outrun death? Yeah. I mean, probably you and me too don't really want to die at this moment. You know, there's people right. in our life that we want to be with, we love, we want to, you know, hang around with for a while longer. I, I'm not romantic about dying. I think it's the hardest thing we'll ever do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's an absurd gamble to imagine that at the time of our dying, we're going to have the physical strength, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime. I think that's an absurd gamble that I don't recommend any of us taking. <laughs> so so let's, let's practice now. Let's develop a relationship with the way things end in our life now. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be the big one. It doesn't have to be the big ticket item, death. Just how do you end things? You know, how do you leave a party? You know? Yeah. Uh, how do you end a meal? You know, what comes up for you as you end? Who taught you to meet endings that way? And, and is, is it satisfying for you? Do you want to keep meeting in that way? Or do you want to change the way you meet endings? Yeah. There's a mm. lot for us to learn just in that simple practice of exploring how we meet endings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's got a lot to offer us. And, and to your question, you know, wholeness doesn't need to reject wellness. Of course not. And wellness, same, doesn't need to reject wholeness. But it's not the whole picture. You know, wellness is not the whole picture. I'm grateful for the good health that I've had in my life, but I'm also really grateful for what I've learned from the illnesses that I've you know, also encountered. Yeah, I've mm -hmm. also had. So, yeah. Yeah. Wholeness. Wholeness is no part left out, as you said. You know, it's not about being perfect. It's not about having just exactly the right body and the right clothes or the right partner or the right house or the right anything. It's just, I take you as is. What a gift to give to ourselves. I take you as is. Yeah. Mm. Even just hearing that is relieving. Yeah, it is, isn't it? You yeah. just feel your shoulders <laughs> drop and everything relaxes a little bit. Like, oh, what a possibility. I could take myself as is. I mean, I don't have to keep driving myself insanely towards some outcome that probably not very practical in the first place. Yeah. And to go back to what you said before that, this idea of practicing endings, this part actually really gut punched me because I don't like saying goodbye and I sneak out of parties and sort of avoid your description. Do you leave either emotionally or mentally before an event is over? That's mm -hmm. me. Or are you the last one in the parking lot watching as the final participants depart? Do you feel sad and get teary-eyed about endings or anxious? Or are you indifferent, isolating yourself and withdrawing into a protective cocoon? It's really interesting. Yeah, I'd never actually thought about that tendency or that aversion. And as I get older and and I recognize, I mean, I was talking to an, one of my best friends from high school. We live in the same city on opposite sides. I rarely see him. And I was like, hopefully I'll see you in 2023. And we were laughing. And then I was like, God, it's been years, you know, but this is, this is the reality of life, right? Like you end up not having that many more goodbyes with people that you love. 
Yeah. So I'm curious, at least you said you duck out of parties, right? That's your, yeah. That's your MO. Where'd you learn that? I'm sure from my parents. My parents were always the first one at parties. You know, they're the people who are actually rude because they're on time and no host actually wants you to be there on time. Or maybe I learned it as like a social nicety in high school or college because you didn't want to draw attention to the fact that you were leaving the party. You know, there's that. That's like a big cultural. But I I think I'm uncomfortable with that level of intimacy ultimately is really what it is. I don't yeah, want to I mean, linger. Some of it, some of it's that, and some of it's you know, kind of inner turmoil we have, and a lot of it's just what we got conditioned to do. You know, yeah. I, I was with a friend of mine, and she's well-known author, and she was with another friend at a party, and she said, "Oh, it's time to go." And he said, "Okay." And she headed for the door, and he went into the party and shook hands with everybody at the party and said, "Oh, it was really good to see you. Oh, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk. Maybe next time we can talk again." Oh, I was really happy to be here together. Even though I didn't visit with you, I was glad to see your smiling face. And he went around to everybody in the party and said goodbye. This is a man by the way who's lived with metastatic cancer for many years and other life-threatening mm-hmm. illnesses. I'm not suggesting it's just that that's caused him to do this, but he had a different kind of conditioning or he chose to make endings different in his life. Yeah. Mm. And that's a practice, you know, we've been talking about living fully and, you know, getting ready for death. And I think it's a practice. I think we have all these little things matter. No, I'm with you. Similarly, I was talking to a friend for this podcast yesterday, and he was saying that he's made it a practice instead of lionizing this very American tendency that we have to introduce our friends by what they do, potentially as reflected glory his practice now that he's he's been implementing for years and years is to introduce his friends and then share an interesting fact or insight about them, like why he loves them. And it was, uh-huh. he did some examples and it was so beautiful. But in this moment, I'm like, I need to let endings matter in a way that I have. And it's funny, my oldest son, he's nine. And I take, when I take them to school in the morning and the bell rings, he comes back to me twice and kisses me on the lips like eight, nine, ten times. And he does the same thing to my husband. And we're always like, when I wonder when he'll find that embarrassing. And then at the same time, and then he leaves and he comes back and kisses me again. It's so amazing. Not that we all need to go and kiss each other, but there is something amazing about marking a goodbye and telling people how we feel uh-huh. every time. Or is that overkill? I don't know. I mean, I don't have a moral standard about how you're supposed to meet endings. You know, <laughs> you know, I just don't. I, I, I have very few standards like that about anything. But what's interesting to me is how do you do it? And mm-hmm. what do you notice in how you meet endings? And are you happy with that? And if you're not happy with it, well, we're not wedded to our past. We don't have to stay in our suffering. We can make changes. We can, you know, introduce another way of meeting this situation. So I don't think leaving the party quick is bad. I just think it's the way you learned. And, and, you know, look and see. Just look and see. That's, That's my whole encouragement. Look and see. When you think about going back a bit in our conversation to when we were talking about forgiveness, it's not the same as forgetting and thinking about how many people I'm sure you've been present with who are navigating that at the end. Do you have any advice for people to start that work earlier so that it's not a deathbed confessional or reunion. So there's not that they're not carrying that baggage for 30 years. I'm hesitating for a moment, mostly because I don't like giving advice. (laughs) (laughs) And what I like is being with people and just having them discover their own answers to things. Yeah. Mm. So Sometimes it, you know, yes, of course, we would want to say, please don't leave this until the time of your dying to do this work. You know, that's what I was saying earlier. It's an absurd gamble. But I'm suspicious of forgiveness that comes too quickly. That where we're just, you know, we think it's a good idea and so we forgive. And we haven't really forgiven, you know. Yeah. You know, then we talk to our husband and we say, you know, I'm still forgiving you for that, you know. And it's just, it hasn't, it wasn't real. It It wasn't sincere. So, I just look and see what am I carrying around that I don't need to carry around? 
Or, you know, you have a closet in your house where you walk by and it's just static. You know, it's just too much stuff you've piled in that closet. And so at some juncture, you decide, I'm going to open the closet. I'm going to take all that stuff out and I'm going to look at it and see if I still want to keep it. And in a way, that's what forgiveness is. You know, it's like, what am I been carrying around? Do I need this? Do I need to do this? Does it help me in any way, you know, to not forgive? You know, what does that do to my heart to not forgive? How does it affect the way I conduct other relationships? So I look at it more from that vantage point, more than it's a strategy we should use so that at our deathbed, we won't have those regrets. You know, there have been some books written about people's regrets, and I think they're very legitimate. But at the end, I don't see people so tangled up in their, in their regrets. I see them. You don't? No, I see them trying to understand what matters. I mean, there are processes to help people kind of review their lives. And they're great. And oftentimes people proceed through them in a very linear way. Where were you born? What school did you go to, et cetera, which is kind of boring, actually. Yeah. So I ask counterintuitive questions. You know, I say, what's the one thing you wish you could remember? Mm-hmm. And that throws us out of our linear thinking, our cognitive you know, frame, and causes us to imagine and to reflect. Or, or I say, what's the one thing you remember about your mother? Or you, you wish was still here. And they mm-hmm. tell me the smell of her. They don't say, oh, you know, she took me to school every day. She's, they say the smell of her, you know, mm-hmm. and the feeling of her seersucker dress. Yeah. And so I think these are the things that, you know, get lodged in our psyches and, and are really important to us. They're, they're gateways to deeper understanding. Yeah. What do you think happens when we die? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, really, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody's got answers to this. Every religion has an answer to it. I'm, I'm a little uncertain, you know, because I think all of those answers have merit. And, mm-hmm. and also what I realize is that our stories about the way we die or what happens after we die shape the way in which we die. So I've been with people who had stories of hell realms after they mm-hmm. died. And that really shaped the way in which they died. You know, it made them very frightened and, and had a sense of punishment and being out of control. Here's a story that you might enjoy. There was an older woman I knew. She was a Christian scientist, deep faith. And I asked her that question, because I ask everybody this question, what do you think happens after you die? And it's not that there's a right answer. I just think it, it's good to get it out into the open. And so she said, I'm just going to lay my head in the lap of Jesus. Mm. She said, I, I said, you sound very confident in that. She said, I do. I am confident. And then her granddaughter came to visit. And her granddaughter had been reading some books about what happens after you die and, you know, near-death experiences and all sorts of things. And she said to her grandmother, Grandma, you don't have to worry about what happens after you die. Because I've been reading these books. And they say that after you die, everybody who's died before you will be there to meet you, to Mm. greet you and welcome you. Grandma became terrified because the story that nobody, she hadn't told anybody, but she told me was that her husband, Edgar, had been beating her most of her life. And and he had died before. And now this image she had of putting her, her her head in the lap of Jesus had been shifted to, oh, my God, Edgar's going to be there and it's going to continue for eternity. So I'm very careful about not imposing my ideas about what happens after we die because I don't know how they're land where they're landing in that person's mm-hmm. history. Yeah. But yeah. I ask everybody. And it's interesting, you know. This one this one guy was very logical. He was a math, mathematician. He was dying. And I said, What do you think after you, happens after you die? He said, Nothing. I said, Nothing. He said, Yeah. So what's that like? Nothing. Because I'm curious. I keep asking. And he said, nothing, nothing happens. I said, you mean like you can't smell anything? He said, no, you can't smell anything. You don't have a nose. I said, oh, well, can you hear anything? No, you can't hear anything. You don't have ears. And he went on like this. And I said, well, what kind of nothing? Is it like a dial tone? You know? And he said, no. He said, he said who, you, who and what you are, all your molecules mixed with all the other molecules in the universe. And that's what happens after you die. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, that sounds okay. Yeah. And so... I thought he was going to be just fine. 
and it turned out his dying was just fine. He didn't have a religious story about it. He was just, this was the way he'd been trained in his life, you know? Everything mixes with everything else. One thing becomes something else. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's different than the person who is terrified. Yeah. So it's an important yeah. question to ask, but not to impose my ideas or not to try and reassure someone with my idea, because that doesn't help. Then, then I'm just laying another standard on them. And it's hard enough to die without dying according to someone else's standard. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com P-T-T. A different, a different take on that question. But when we were talking about sort of, there's the bio, right, and then there are the assets of your life or the physical, the physical stuff. And then we think about the way that people continue when we let them continue to live on in our minds and our stories. And it's never that, right? It's the the quality of our relationship with them, the memories or moments we shared, and in that way. That's one of the, the ways that I perceive like immortality, really, that there is a legacy of, of action and influence on people who are still here. Mm -hmm. And yet, for so many, death is so painful, which I understand that we'd rather never talk about people who have died. We let them, we let our stories die too. Sometimes, I mean, I think that as a culture, we're also afraid of asking people about their loved ones who've died. You know, we yeah. don't want to upset them, you know? So, you know, they come to a party after their mother's died and nobody asks them, gee, you know, how to go with your mom? How you doing? You know, because we, we don't want to upset them. Yeah. You know, I, I think a subject we haven't launched into yet is grief, you know, and, yeah. and the necessity for grief and how grief and I'm not just speaking about our wild tears. I'm speaking about the many faces of grief, you know, our, our fear, our feeling like we're walking through molasses, you know, our the heaviness of grief, many, many qualities that it has. The thing is that grief is the way we love people after they've died. That's what it is, you know. It's, it's like a love that has no place to go. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we find ways of including this, both 
in our own lives, but also in the, in the lives of our friends and family, that we ask about it, that we share about it. We don't immediately take, oh, well, when my mother died, it was just like this, you know? We, we really inquire like we want to know. We want to know what's true for this other person. Yeah? Mm. We, don't, we don't need to fix them. You know, someone said this, the soul doesn't need to be fixed. It just needs to be witnessed. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. I think that's true in, in, the, in, in the time of grief. It's like grief. a constellation of experiences, grief. It's not one thing. It's not just sadness. It's this, all these other qualities that I was mentioning, you know, fear and anger and, you know, all sorts of things They're, that are part of this constellation of experiences we call grief. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I feel like we make, we make grief very isolating culturally out of that fear of reminding someone somehow of something. And it's like, well, this, these people, this grief is present. It's not like someone goes to a party and they're like, oh my God, I forgot my mom died or my brother or whomever it may be, my husband, right? And you've reminded me it is present. I remember many years ago, I interviewed Lucy Kalanithi, Paul's wife, who wrote When Breath Becomes Air. Yeah. And she was saying I know, to me- She's great. Yeah, she's, she's great wonderful. Person. Yeah, it was such a moving conversation. And and she said something, she was like, you know, one of my greatest fears is that people will stop talking to me about Paul yeah. and that our daughter will won't hear about her her father anymore. And yeah. that's how he lives for her. And I thought that was such a beautiful idea and a reminder to all of us to, as you said, mention it check in, share stories that that yeah. person might not have access to or memories because it's a, a now finite pool. Yeah. Have you experienced a death in your life? Of someone close? I have. Yeah, someone very close. My, my brother's husband, who was my best friend, died. It will be six years ago. Oh. He died suddenly in his sleep. He was 39. Wow. And yeah. And yeah, put me, it completely changed my life, completely. In what way? Oh, it just put me into conversation with the universe. And it put me, you know, in terms of sort of my own spirituality in a place where it wasn't acceptable to me to lose Peter or talk about him in the past. And so it put me into a situation where I did whatever I could and I still do to maintain an active relationship with him in my mind and the way that I live my life. Mm. And it just, it really pushed me to think about death and, and how the most remarkable person could just be gone. Most healthy, did Barry's boot camp that morning, healthy person was suddenly gone. And a cultural intolerance for grief, all of it, this feeling that you don't live really. And in so many ways, it sounds like a, perverse thing to say, but in so many ways, I'm so grateful for his, his death, like profoundly deepened my life by even forcing me into conversation with darkness or shadow or the cycle really of life. Like this, this is life. Mm -hmm. And to disavow that reality is to live sort of at half mast, you know, mm -hmm. half a life, yeah. half a life, half a life. Well, that must be must. I can only imagine that was difficult, of course, because he was relatively young and it was a very sudden death. Sounds like yeah, yes. There was no preparation for it. It doesn't sound like yeah. So no you're warning. Taken yeah. by surprise, shock, and that's part of the grief too, right? Those qualities as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's curious to me that in this culture we speak a lot about legacy and you know, contributing to a university or you know our children as legacy, etc. But we don't think about this kind of legacy that you got from Peter. Mm -mm. You know, that that in a way, even like you said, it sounds strange to be grateful, but actually, you know, he opened up something in your heart, it sounds like. You know, yes. that maybe maybe needed to be opened, or at least you've you've come to learn from its opening in a way. Yes. And that, and that came through his death. That was part of his legacy, his gift to you in a way. And we're not I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about it, but it's part of the legacy. You know, when people yes. die, they leave a legacy for us. Yeah. A, th a thousand percent. And I, it's not, when I say I live his life, it's, I, my life is in many ways nothing 
like his life in terms of what he did. And it's not that I'm trying to fulfill some sort of obligation on his behalf, but when I think about his quality as a person and his generosity, and it's not also as a, what can I do to make Peter proud of me? It is sort of a, how do I live this? How do I live this experience in a way that also helps other people or hopefully opens up more conversations like the one that I'm having with you because mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I'm death obsessed by or morbid in that way but I am now deeply disinterested in looking away I know that was a strange negative but I think I want people to feel whole I want them to walk through their lives whole and Peter was whole. That's the other thing that was that was so interesting about his death is that, and again, not to sound Pollyannish about him either, but he was a very intact person and in a way that was very beautiful, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and as you're reminding us all, beautifully, I would say, is that the relationship with someone doesn't end because they die. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you, you're speaking about Peter in a very vibrant way, yeah? mm-hmm. and it's not holding on to him. It's not clinging to Peter in a way. It's just like this is what he left me. This is what he taught me. This is what I learned from his very existence and from his dying. Mm-hmm. And so the relationship continues, and that's a really important thing to 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 recognize when we talk about grief because it it's there. You know, at first we feel this tremendous loss and we feel fragmented, etc., and then there's a way in which we do come to a kind of wholeness where we, we don't have the stranglehold of grief around us anymore. You know, we're not, mm-hmm. you know, and if, at first we're not able to function, but then at some other juncture, and it's not just time, saying that time heals is crap. You know? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but what happens is we, we recognize that that person is with us and we have an internal relationship with them. And so we can go through the world and carry them with us in a certain way. Yeah? Mm. And, yeah. you know, you probably talk to Peter from time to time, you know, you're not crazy. That's a really, you know, wonderful thing to do. It speaks to the love that you shared in your relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I'm not a sentimental person. I'm really comfortable with death in many ways. My dad's, a, I grew up, my dad's a doctor. I like grew up working in the hospital. I'm not scared of medicine or death, but. It isn't, there are, I'm sure anyone who's listening has that person or can imagine those people where you're like, not them, as long as it's not them. Right. And when it is them, that, that yeah, my, I know you said you don't like to give advice, but my best advice is to stay connected as, as painful. Well, it's not, it's more painful to not, I think, in my limited perspective. Well, it sounds like what you're suggesting is that Peter's death and and what you've explored in this territory, that death has shows us what matters most. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I say she's the secret teacher hiding in plain sight. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that sounds like well, that's what you're describing now. Is, you know, it told Peter's death reminded me to live my life without reservation. You know, yes, and to to live fully and and, and with integrity and purpose, and you know, to do what really is meaningful to me. Yeah. Yeah. Frank and I didn't get to this today, but he also writes about the idea of hope and expectation in a really beautiful way, very powerful way, because I think that's one of those words that we toss around that without really thinking about what it is, And he writes about ordinary hope disguised as expectation, as being fixated on a specific outcome. This hope gets conflated with the desire for a certain future result. It becomes object focus. It takes us outside of ourselves. And he argues that instead of that type of wishful thinking, he writes, to discern the real value of hope, we must draw a line between hope and expectation. Hope is an optimizing force that moves us and all of life toward harmony. It doesn't arrive from outside. Rather, it is an abiding state of being, a hidden wellspring within us. When the mind is still and awake, we can see reality more clearly and recognize it as a living, dynamic process. 
Hope that is active has an imaginative daring to it which helps us to realize our unity with all life and find the resourcefulness required to act on its behalf. Love that idea. It's beautiful, particularly that it's a collective energy, that it is a type. Optimism sounds sort of cheap, but but it's this idea of, we'll just call it a beautiful optimism and a hope for all of us. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, and it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.